verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and stay in the temple. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. Um, if you're seeing me here preaching today, it probably means that there's a holiday coming. And so um, it's... I, it's a great uh, honor and a blessing to be able to allow our pastors to get some rest um, and to speak for them uh, this week. This morning, we read through Isaiah chapter 6. And if you were like me when you read this chapter, you probably recognized or were familiar with some of the words of this passage. Or secondly, once the, the familiarity of the passage began to wear off, maybe you were left scratching your head wondering, what in the world did I just read? If you're confused about what you just read in the Bible, chances are you are reading within the prophetic pages of Scripture. Within the Old Testament, there are essentially four genres, or there are four categories. Those genres are the historical narrative books, the books of the law, the books of poetry, and then you've got prophecy. The importance of knowing what genre of book that you're entering into as you read is similar to the importance of knowing what kind of genre of movie that you'd be walking into at a movie theater 
You see, knowing what kind of genre of movie you'd be walking to affects the way that you approach it. For example, if you were going to walk into a scary movie, perhaps you would bring a blanket with you or a date for added boldness. Or if you're going to walk into a romantic comedy with a bunch of your friends, especially if your friends are like mine, who are of the highly emotional persuasion, you might enter into the theater with a box of tissues. And so to, the, to approach a prophetic book like the book of Isaiah, it's important to remember that prophets, although they had some glimpse into a vision of God into the future, prophets are not God. Meaning they are not all-knowing, they are simply all-telling receiving their message from God and the importance of the message from the prophets isn't merely found in the state of things that are going to come into the future. That's important to know. But what's more important is the vision of God, uh, the vision of the God who holds that future in his hands. And so the prophets of the Old Testament actually function in a similar, although not exactly the same way as Noah, as Moses, Abraham, the judges, and the kings Prophets were merely communicators, or they were instruments called by God to convey a message to the people. That's how God used them. And so this morning, we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 opens up with a statement of historical significance. I mean, before we even get into the calling of Isaiah to be a prophet of the Lord, before we even get into the heart or the nature of the people that Isaiah would speak to Chapter 6 begins with a historical statement saying that in the year King Uzziah died. Now, if you've been following with our church through the year of the Bible reading, you'll know that sometime following Solomon's death, the nation of Israel actually had split up into two different political entities. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there was the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, Uzziah was crowned king of Judah around the year 792 to 740. And King Uzziah, for the most part, he was a good king. And I say good in that within the scope of his 50-ish year reign in Judah, the nation actually experienced a great amount of prosperity. Not only that, but in the short account recorded about his reign in 2 Kings chapter 15, he is recorded as a king who did what was right in the Lord's eyes. Militarily, Uzziah mounted successful strategic attacks against the Philistines. He created pivotal military outposts, and in the book of Chronicles, you could read that Uzziah even played a role in refortifying the walls of Jerusalem and fitting them with towers. But you see, as good as King Uzziah was in the Lord's eyes, we also read about a condition that led to his death, starting in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26. In 2 Chronicles, King Uzziah thought himself to be above the priestly duties that God had given for the temple. And long story short, Uzziah, full of pride, forcefully enters into the temple to offer up his burnt incense to the Lord. And as a result of his pride and disobedience, he contracts leprosy, which, which ends up leading to his death around 740 B.C. Now, for any king to be ruling for so long, there no doubt must have been grief as much of the, as, as much of the people, including Isaiah, had known Uzziah as king for 50 years. But on top of the significance of the death of this well-known king, here's what else was going on during this time. Within the known world, there was a growing oppression towards the nation of Israel that was coming from the nation of Assyria, who had up until this point had been pretty passive in their aggression towards other nations. 
And around 745 BC, Assyria had just crowned a new king named Tiglath-Pileser III. It's not important to remember his name, but ultimately what happened is, is that he ushered in this whole new world or this new era of pain towards Israel and towards Judah. And so, in the year that King Uzziah died, this was the landscape for the people of Judah. Their, 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 their king, who had, who had been their king for about 50 years, had, was now gone. And also, within the wake of this loss, the Assyrian king was billowing and amassing militant forces for his conquest. And then there's the message of Isaiah that we get to hash out together this morning. In the midst of all the things that were going on in the world at this time, Isaiah has this vision from the Lord, and it says this in verse 1. It says, I, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4 reads that the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now this vision really sets up a way for us to approach the remaining portion of this text and even the entirety of the book of Isaiah. God is more holy than mankind could ever possibly fathom. Isaiah has this vision of God that cannot be described more appropriately than this encounter with such pure holiness that even angelic beings had to cover their face because they were in, in the presence of such glory. As a matter of fact, the seraphim declare and they repeat it three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what's interesting is that this attribution that the angels give to God, that God is the holy Lord of hosts, communicates actually something kind of ironic. Whether intentional or not, when we think of what was going on historically during the events of this passage, that God would be declared as the holy Lord of hosts, or essentially Lord Almighty, leader of armies both heavenly and earthly. This seems ironic given that God is declared Almighty at a time of national instability due to a fallen king, and even greater uncertainty when confronted with a warring king. Why is God being declared as Lord of hosts, ironic? Well, that's because the people that Isaiah would eventually be called to prophesy to were people who looked everywhere else except towards the God, except towards God for their sense of fulfillment and stability. They were looking at kings around them and what they were doing instead of looking at the king of kings. But before we get a little ahead of ourselves, let's take a look at how Isaiah responds to the vision of the throne room of God in, in chapter 6. Upon seeing such amazing glory, seeing such holiness and splendor, Isaiah responds to the vision in chapter 6, verse 5, where he says this, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, when he stands before God, begins to see God and himself more rightly. 
God, for all that he is, is holy. Isaiah and mankind, for all that matter, for all that we are, we are not holy. Isaiah stands in such pure presence of God that he begins to see how filthy he really is. Now this realization of presence and appearance reminds me of the time that my sweet Annie and I were going to run some errands. And one day Annie tells me that she wants to buy some paper because she was making some cards and some invitations. And there was a specialty store nearby that had the paper that she was looking for. And so, without, without question, I hopped into the car with her without really thinking twice about the outfit that I was wearing. Because for all intents and purposes, I was dressed comfortably in my green shirt, my red shorts, and my Jesus sandals. And we followed the GPS to a shopping mall called South Coast Plaza. <laughs> you know where this is going. Good, good. <laughs> and this was my first impression of South Coast Plaza. I don't know if it's regularly like this because I haven't gone back since, but I've, <laughs> I've driven by there several times, and from the outside, South Coast Plaza never really struck me as anything more than a local mall, but man, when we pulled into the lot and walked into the mall and see it, like the first thing I noticed was like, man, these floors are clean. <laughs> I remember feeling vividly, I just remember vividly feeling gross. I started looking at my outfit, I'm like, what am I wearing? Now, this, this very much could be a self-esteem thing. But when I walked into the side of the mall that we entered, I saw, saw these little kids that looked like as, as dressed as good as the mannequins from the store, if not better, and with their, style, their styled hair. And then I started to look at my tomato-inspired Jesus outfit. Uh, and I felt like, and this is very dramatic, but I felt like I was emitting an aura that was tainting the pristine floors of South Coast Falls. I was like, what am I doing? Now, that's really dramatic. I get it. God looks at the heart. Uh, but on a more serious note, and going back to our passage of Isaiah, in Isaiah, God is holier and much more pure than anything we could understand or comprehend. As a matter of fact, God is so holy that standing in his mere presence brought light to the uncleanliness in Isaiah's life. And on a side note, even one commentator pointed out that to be in the throne room of God meant to call for ritual purification. Isaiah, even after being judged as ritually clean, he understands his own sinfulness. He stands in the presence of a holy God, and the first thing he notices is his image and his filthiness in the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." And as a result of Isaiah's words, as a result of his recognition of his condition and his standing before this holy God, the angels respond and touch the prophet's mouth with a coal from the altar and thereby pronounce two things. One, that Isaiah's guilt is removed and that his sins are forgiven. Isaiah, in this instance, upon recognizing his condition, is set apart. He's, he's declared guiltless, or his, his guilt is removed and his sins are forgiven. But notice something here, church. Isaiah's guilt is removed and his sins are forgiven at the acknowledgement of his own uncleanliness. But what about the people of God? What about Israel? What about Judah? What happens to the people that Isaiah says was like himself, a people of unclean lips? What about them? Well, this is where Isaiah receives his commission or his calling from the Lord. 
in Isaiah 6, verse 8, it says that Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responded by saying, Here I am, send me. Now I grew up seeing this verse pasted all over bookmarks, bumper stickers, and banners. And growing up without really reading through the book of Isaiah, the idea of Isaiah declaring, Here I am, send me, was always met with optimism and delight at the thought about being used by God to serve the world for his purposes. Now don't get me wrong, to be called by God to serve his purposes in whatever vocation you may be is, is a truly high calling. But interestingly enough, Isaiah's calling would ultimately be a calling to present the truth of God to deaf ears and hardened hearts. Isaiah was called to bring a prophetic message to a people who would knowingly brush the message aside. That was his calling. God's charge for Isaiah was for the prophet to be called to speak a message to a people that would inevitably further dull their ears and their eyes towards God. One theologian helps clarify the call of Isaiah when he states that instead of bringing conviction, instead of bringing humility and confession of sins, Isaiah's divine message will have the primary effect of hardening people or confirming their hardened unwillingness to respond positively to God. And this is what we read next. After Isaiah responds his hand and says, here I am, send me. God says in verses 9 and 10, okay, thanks Isaiah, go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and in turn be healed. Within this stretch of scripture in verses 9 through 10, Isaiah is essentially commanded to bring God's message to the people, to preach to them. But what would eventually happen is that his preaching would not awaken the people out of their spiritual apathy. At this point, it would not stir them to repent from their idols and turn to God. And not only that, the message that Isaiah would bring would only serve to harden and deaden the hearts of the people. Man, what happens next in verse 11 only furthers the heartbreaking and difficult call of Isaiah. In verse 11, Isaiah says something like, okay, God, message received. The message that I'm going to communicate is going to deafen the people. They're not going to listen. But like this is a lament, like we see in the Psalms, Isaiah says, for how long? How long will this carry on, God? How long? Now, the question that Isaiah poses can be described as a cry of lament. Even as Isaiah has been set apart from the people, even as he has been forgiven of his guilt and sin, he also wonders, he laments, he hopes for the future of the people. And God continues on with the second half of verse 11. He says in response to Isaiah's lament, how long? Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a, terebin, uh, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Now stopping right there for a second, 
as we reflect on the words Isaiah is called to give, it's really difficult to digest. It is. On one end, Isaiah has the challenging task, knowing that he would deliver the message that would fall upon an unresponsive people. On the other end, God's prophetic words to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah seem to indicate that the people are way past the point of no return. Now, if we were to isolate this passage as a one-time event, it, it really is difficult to see why God would allow such catastrophic events to happen to his covenant people. If we look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, the hardening of the people's hearts, um, uh, as, if we look at this as an initial response from God, then yes, this message is truly troubling. But if we were to take into account all that the people of God had been commanded up until this point in their history, we'd find that God in this moment in Isaiah is judging the people for their long-standing, unrepentant hearts. The people have had multiple opportunities to repent in the past when repentance was possible. But here in Isaiah, it's hard not to see God like the father who is at the point of allowing his children to suffer the consequences for actions that he has already warned them over and over again about in the past. And in verse 11, we see the full plan of God's judgment begin to unfold. It's evident based on God's response to Isaiah's inquiry of how long that God is not happy with the people. Well, why isn't God happy with them? Why couldn't God just extend extra grace to Israel in this moment, at least in this particular moment in history? Now, this goes back to the idea that we discussed at the beginning of our time when Isaiah stands in the presence of God. The revelation of God as being holy is utterly important for us to understand. The revelation of God being holy is important for us to think about. It is important for us to wrestle with. Because when we stop and think about the holiness of God, we begin to think a little bit more clearly in regards to God's outlook towards sin. If you're reading through the first half of Isaiah this week, you would have read and seen throughout the first couple of chapters just how sinful the state of God's chosen people had been. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read the heartbreaking account about how God has been faithful, but the children that he had reared, that he had brought up, that he had rescued and delivered from the hands of multiple oppressors, God's covenant people had rebelled against him. I mean, if you take a look at the descriptors of the people that were used in Isaiah chapter 1, they're described as a sinful people. They are laden with iniquity. They're described as people who have forsaken the Lord and they despised him. They are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah in their wickedness. And it's easy to isolate a passage like the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and think, wow, God, it seems a little harsh to leave your people in, in this sort of desolation. It may even seem unfair for God to give Isaiah a call that only serves to harden and deafen the hearts of those who hear his message. But when we start to think of sin more appropriately, in that sin stands in opposition to a holy God, or that sin is a willful human act of rebellion towards God and his purposes, 
And when we read about the cycle of Israel's sin, who after being delivered by God from the hands of their enemies multiple times, and how it would only take a matter of time before they would turn their back towards him, to answer the thought, well, isn't God being a little harsh by warning and foreshadowing that his covenant people would inevitably experience such intense judgment? I don't think so. It's really hard to make that case. There's a song in the musical, My Fair Lady, that's entitled, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. It was sang by the character Professor Henry Higgins. And in this song, essentially, the professor communicates his anger at the fact that his student, Eliza Doolittle, had chosen to walk out of his life and he had grown so accustomed to her face and all the details of her face that he was angry at how much he would begin to miss her. Church, I think when it comes to matters of us dealing with, confronting, and even experiencing the justice and judgment of God like we do here in Isaiah, perhaps the issue is that we've grown so accustomed to God's grace that we forget that our God is also a holy and just God and that sin is detestable to him. And so, as God gives Isaiah this message to deliver to the people that will harden their hearts, what God is essentially doing is he's handing the people over to their own devices. They had experienced God and his grace in the past when it came to their preservation and rescue, and now, and unfortunately for them, the prophet's message was that they were going to enter into a season of experiencing the judgment of God. It is remarkably sad, but it is essentially an allowing of the people to experience the extent of their own depravity. God allows his children to experience the folly of their decisions even after he warns them repeatedly. I think for most of us who have children or have spent some time serving and caring for, ch for children will understand this idea to some degree. I mean, I still experience this even as a husband. Annie will repeatedly warn me of consequences for my actions, right? She'll say things like, I think you're doing too much, or if you don't slow down, you're going to feel it tomorrow, or trust me, I'm right. Um, and perhaps more often than not, when I don't take her advice, I suffer for it. Now, it would raise a few eyebrows in this room if after I didn't take my sweet Annie's advice, if after suffering for the consequences of my actions, I turned to Annie and said something like, how could you let this happen to me? <laughs> and so going back to verses 11 through 12 here in Isaiah chapter 6, God's answer to Isaiah is twofold. So the question, how long will their hearts be hardened by this message? And God says, until their land is destroyed, until the people are exiled. Now, what are we to make of the conclusion of our study together here in Isaiah chapter 6? It surely doesn't really end on a high note, right? And for that, I'm very grateful for the pastors for assigning this passage to me today. <laughs> it doesn't end on a high note, but with the consequences being levied upon the people of God and Isaiah's role and all that, what are we to do with Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I think it's difficult but appropriate for us to sit for a moment and reflect on the nature of who God is as holy Lord of hosts. We need to sit on that. We need to think about who, how holy he is. 
the idea or notion that God is a buddy or like a gracious grandparent in the sky can sometimes lead us to forget that God is also holy. He is a God who delights in righteousness and as such detests evil. Maybe your buddies or your grandparents detest evil too, so I'm sorry. But as we begin to draw to a close this morning, there are two perspectives within this chapter that can inform and provide a means of application for us to consider. On one end, from the perspective of the people of Israel and Judah, as God reveals himself to you, do not turn away from a holy God. I think that there's a temptation for us to hear the judgment of of God upon Judah in this passage, and there's a temptation to think that God deals with with his people like this in all circumstances. Well, in, in as much as this was the case for the people who were receiving this prophetic message from Isaiah, in hindsight, we have seen God display a tremendous deal of grace for those who would choose to repent and turn away from their sins. Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, as he begins his ministry here on earth, says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the invitation that he brings to the people. Friends, I pray that if you are hearing this message this morning, and you find that God is speaking to you through this text, and if he is revealing sin that you may be holding on to in your life, I pray that you repent and turn away. The beautiful vantage point that we have is that we are living life a couple thousand years after Jesus demonstrates the ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross, where he lays down his life so that you and I can no longer have to be bound by the eternal consequence of sin. Friends, for as long as you and I continue to wrestle with sin in our lives, for as long as we live in a world where we see sin wreak havoc, as it pulls families apart, as it divides our communities, looking to the actions of Jesus, ultimately paying for the consequences of our sin, which is eternal spiritual separation from God and hell. I pray that as the word of God, as our communities, as teachers from God's word speak truth that rebukes us in our sins, that we would see sin for, tru- for what it truly is, that we would see what sin leads to. Sin, for what it truly is, is that which opposes the holiness of God. And then finally, even as circumstances around you may look dismal or uncertain, let us look to to the God who has at multiple times delivered us in the past. Let us look to him and not to our own idols. It's really easy to look at the people of Israel and Judah and point out their mistakes, isn't it? They knew God had delivered them in remarkably supernatural ways. Why turn to idols in the face of uncertainty? Why worship kings or fear that God has abandoned you at the coming of an Assyrian army? I wonder what idols we turn to when we're in the midst of uncertainty or big transitions in life. Where is God in all that? I'm preaching to myself here, too. One of the beautiful things that that comes up within the book of Isaiah is that although there is much to say about the coming destruction and, and exile of God's people, it is also in Isaiah where we get some of the richest foreshadowing That although the people have turned their backs to God, although the people have turned to worshiping other gods and are in this season of judgment, 
The book of Isaiah is littered with a message of hope that despite judgment, God is still going to remain faithful to the people, and he demonstrates that faithfulness through multiple illusions pointing to a coming Messiah. Thankfully for us, we get to look back on a Savior like Jesus who invites us to come to him, to cast our cares upon him, to cast our anxieties upon him and rely upon him for peace in the midst of trials and uncertainty. It's an amazing thing to consider that at the sacrifice and end of Jesus' life, we as human beings have a cause to rejoice. And so a couple of questions for you to consider as you enter into hopefully a nice holiday weekend. As you sit in your time with God this week, as you read through the word, or even as you spend some time with your community groups, ask, are there any sins in my life that are being revealed? Is, there, is God inviting you to repent and turn away from anything in particular? And then as you think about others who have been called to share the good news, that you've been called to share the good news to, how has that process been for you? Are you encouraged? Are you discouraged at that call? Ultimately leading to one of the aspects of our time together this morning, how can thinking about the call of Isaiah, being called to speak God's truth faithfully, even if that meant unsuccessfully in a human sense, how can thinking about the call of Isaiah encourage you as you continue to share the gospel to the world around you? Let me pray for us as we close. Lord, thank you for messages like the ones we have in Isaiah that, that remind us that your grace has come at a cost. That, Lord, you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, I pray that the realization that our sins have this really ugly effect in our lives would lead us to pursue righteousness, not for the sake of atoning for our own sins, but as a way of glorifying who you are as holy Lord of hosts. And so, God, I pray that you transform our community to love one another more fully. Lord, we're so grateful for what you've done for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.